From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think reducing misery is a far better goal for society than promoting happiness. I mean, promoting happiness is very good, but reducing misery is more urgent and also likelier to mobilize people to action. That's Daniel Kahneman. He's one of the most, if not the most, influential psychologist of our time. In 2002, he won the Nobel Prize in Economics for, quote, having integrated insights from psychological research into economic science, especially concerning human judgment and decision-making under uncertainty, end quote. A decade later, his groundbreaking book, Thinking Fast and Slow, marked the culmination of his life's work, studying bias and decision-making. In recent years, Kahneman has turned his focus to what he refers to as noise, or unwanted variability in judgments in everything from the practice of medicine, to the sentencing of criminal defendants, to pop culture, and what makes some songs hits, but not others. He joins me to discuss all of this and his remarkable career. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd Call on? Call mom? <laughs> no. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Now let's get to your questions. So there were a lot of questions this week about the New York State AG's report long-awaited, that finally dropped this week, that looked at sexual harassment allegations against the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. Here's one question from Sarah, who asks, as a former prosecutor, what stood out to you about the Cuomo report? Did anything surprise you, either in terms of its conclusions or the way that the investigation was conducted? So a lot of things stood out to me. I will say I was not particularly surprised at the nature, quality, and tone of the report, nor of the tone and temperament of both June Kim and Ann Clark, and Tish James, the New York State Attorney General, uh, who oversaw it. I think they were extremely professional. I think the report itself is extremely professional. It's 165 pages long. It details, among other things, the process of the investigation. They spoke to 179 witnesses. From reporting, we know that they spent hours and hours with each witness. The report is that they spent 11 hours alone with the governor himself, and they reviewed literally thousands of pages of documents They looked at emails. They looked at BlackBerry messages. So they had a lot of information. So I'm not surprised 
by the meticulousness of the investigation and the report. I'm not surprised by the thoroughness of it. And with respect to the tone, I have predicted all along, given the professionalism of June Kim, who's been my friend for a long time and my work colleague for a long time, that it would be very fact-based, that there would be allegation after allegation recited in the report only if it had corroboration. And they would be balanced in their approach looking at the testimony they got and the indicia of credibility. At many junctures in the report, they talk about an allegation, for example, with respect to Executive Assistant 1, as she's referred to in the report, who made a particular allegation about being physically groped by the governor in his office. And they make an assessment of the credibility of those allegations, whether or not they were contemporaneous emails or contemporaneous statements to other folks. They also incorporate in the denials, whether they're credible or not, by the governor himself. In the press conference that announced the release of the report, I was struck by something that June said, which basically framed, I think, a lot of this. And he talked about how multiple things coexisted at the same time in the governor's mansion during the period that they investigated. The executive chamber's culture of fear and flirtation, intimidation and intimacy, abuse and affection created a work environment ripe for harassment. Which I think sums up a lot of what their report found. They make a very clear statement. It's not mealy-mouthed. They say their ultimate conclusion is that the governor of the state of New York engaged in unlawful sexual harassment, that there were 11 credible victims. So overall, that's how I felt about the report. To the extent I was struck by particular allegations, there are a new set of allegations involving something that we did not know about before from press reports. And that is allegations of sexual harassment against a state trooper, somebody who, according to the report, Andrew Cuomo ran into at the RFK bridge at some public event, looks like he picked her out, and then had a direct and personal hand in getting her promoted to his security detail. Now, what's interesting about that, before we get to the allegations, is that it turns out she only had two years on the job. And regulations specify that two years is not enough to be promoted to that other unit. But they did what? They made a special exception for this state trooper, after which, according to the report and according to her very credible testimony under oath to the investigators, he made sexually offensive comments and engaged in unwanted touching of her body on more than one occasion. Now, there's a response from the governor's office, a very sort of slickly produced video that must have been done in advance that doesn't address many of the things that are recited in the report, including the allegations of the state trooper, including the allegations of retaliation. There is a document that his lawyer, Rita Glavin, posted on the governor's website, which at first I thought must be very substantial because it runs to 85 pages. And then on closer look, you realize that it's 20-something pages of text, which again, is very selective in what they address and what they don't address, perhaps in part because they wrote it before they saw what was in the report. But then there's 50 pages of photographs of Andrew Cuomo, and not just him, but other people, engaging in hugs and cheek kissing, including Obama hugging hurricane victims, Andrew Cuomo kissing his mother on the cheek, looking affectionate with his father. I don't know who advised that that was a defense or that that was a plausible way to attack and rebut this very specific allegations of unwanted touching and groping and sex-based harassment in terms of language and statements and propositions. But if you want to know what struck me, it was the lameness of the response as much as the power of the report. Now, as you've heard before, if you listen to the show, there has been a foundation laid for attacking the credibility and the honesty and the motivations of the investigators, both Letitia James and June Kim. I recited to all of you the craziness of Andrew Cuomo and his people 
in trying to make the argument to page six of the New York Post just a few weeks ago that one of the motivations for June Kim was to undermine the political standing of Andrew Cuomo so that who? I, Preet Bharara, could run for governor against a damaged office holder, which, as I said before, is a lie and is stupid, and I have no doubt originated with and was done with the approval of Andrew Cuomo. There will be some more of that, I imagine. He's pretty defiant. For those who want to know what's happening next, as I think many people who have seen Andrew Cuomo for a period of time predicted, he will not resign, even though President Joe Biden himself, the head of the Democratic Party, and a friend of Andrew Cuomo, has called for his resignation. Every single member of the Democratic congressional delegation has called for the resignation of Andrew Cuomo, but he won't do it. So what are the options? What happens next? I guess he can either stay in office defiantly, but there is an ongoing impeachment investigation taking place in the New York State Assembly, whose speaker is Carl Hasty, who made some pretty harsh comments about his reaction to the report this week. Whether he will launch full force impeachment proceedings against Andrew Cuomo remains to be seen, but I think that's what a lot of people have been calling for, including, by the way, the new Democratic nominee for mayor of the city of New York, Eric Adams. Now, there's another question that's come up a lot as well. For example, in this email from Bailey, who asks, could the New York Attorney General's report on Andrew Cuomo's sexual harassment lead to criminal charges? And the answer to that, with respect to the Attorney General's office, is no. I don't believe she has the authority to bring those kinds of charges. The other thing I'll say before I get to the possibility of criminal charges is, a number of these women, I think, now have greater standing and a roadmap by which they can bring their own civil suits against Andrew Cuomo, which would lead to discovery and perhaps potential judgments against him in the civil court of law. Now, with respect to criminal charges, as I'm recording this on Wednesday morning, there is news of at least three district attorney's offices in New York who have formally asked for information from the attorney general's office so they can make their own independent assessment about whether or not criminal charges are warranted with respect to some subset of these allegations. Those DA's offices include the County of Albany, David Soares, Westchester County, Mimi Roca, and the Manhattan DA's office, run by still Cy Vance. You have to remember that a lot of the allegations in the 165-page report, while they may qualify as violations of Title VII, civil rights law, they are not crimes. Propositioning, making unwanted comments, creating an inappropriate and hostile work environment is not a violation of any criminal statute. But some of the things that are alleged could amount to sexual assault, like some of the allegations made by Executive Assistant One and by the state trooper. And those are the kinds of things that the various DAs will be looking at, making an assessment of, depending also on the cooperation of the alleged victims. And it is possible that there will be a criminal charge against Andrew Cuomo as well. But that remains to be seen. And if you're watching the story, particularly if you live in New York and you care about who the leader of the state uh, or the state government is, bear in mind one thing. This investigation began when people came forward bravely, and I, I add myself to the chorus of voices who commends the bravery of these women who came forward. It's not an easy thing to do. And you see, by the way, the report detailing how much retaliation went on. Another point that's gone largely unrebutted by the Cuomo camp and by the Cuomo camp's lawyers that he called for the investigation to be done by Letitia James because he was under political pressure to do so. So having done that, every time he strikes out and says it's biased or it's politically motivated or was the wrong person to have done it, remember, he's the one who said that's where it should occur. Because at that moment, he's the kind of person who in the moment tries to do the most expedient thing. That's been my experience with him. And that's what he does. It's reminiscent of something that if you're in New York, you may remember from a few years ago. With great fanfare, he decides to set up the Moreland Commission, which is to examine corruption, widespread corruption, in the state legislature and other places in New York State. And suddenly, 
Nine months later, long before it had finished its work, shut it down. I will also say on the question of whether or not you believe these victims who are making allegations, who have no reason to make them up, there's no bad motivations that are credible that you can lodge against them. When you're trying to figure out whether or not they're credible, I think investigators and potentially future judges in court cases will have to weigh their credibility against a governor who, in my own experience, does not have a reputation for straightforward honesty and truthfulness. He and his people have lied about me. What else are they capable of lying about? Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. My guest this week is Nobel Prize-winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman. He's been thinking about why we make the decisions we do for practically his entire life, a life that was recognized with the Presidential Medal of Freedom presented to him by President Obama in 2013. He basically invented uh, the study of human decision-making. But what uh, truly sets Daniel apart is his curiosity, uh, guided by his belief that people are endlessly complicated and interesting. Kahneman's new book, Noise, co-written with Cass Sunstein and Olivier Saboni, pulls back the curtain on a new area of study, helping us understand unwanted variability in judgment across organizations, institutions, and government. Professor Daniel Kahneman, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Uh, we were going to talk about your book, Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment, uh, for which you have a couple of co-authors. Before we get to that, as I was telling you before we started recording, I've been a, a fan of your work for a long time. I'm not the only one. There are so many of us. And I had an initial worry uh, as I was thinking about this interview, and, and I consulted with our mutual friend, Adam Grant, who's at Wharton, and I asked him, what do I call Daniel Kahneman? How do I address you? And he said, call him Danny. And I said, I can't call him Danny. Oh, you must. <laughs> I said, I, to me, see, seeing your full name on, on book covers as Daniel Kahneman and given all the work that you have done and the Nobel Prize that you have won, I said, I, I, I can't call him Danny. Maybe I can call him Sir Danny. <laughs> that is, well, how does that that's sound? the only name I respond to. So Danny is uh, the So I guess if yes. I don't call you that, yes, it'll be a very short do. interview. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Danny, although it seems a little odd still uh, out of my mouth, 
thank you for doing this. Thank you for all the work that you have done explaining, among other things, to the world that, that people are not necessarily rational. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the subtitle of your book, Noise, is a flaw in human judgment. And this has implications for lots and lots of things. One flaw in human judgment that people are more familiar with, and you take pains to distinguish this book from, is bias. We hear about bias, we learn about bias, we talk about bias, we try to train to overcome bias. That's something that everyone is familiar with to some degree, uh, if not fully. You distinguish this other flaw in human judgment, namely noise, which you define, you and your co-authors define as an undesirable variability in judgments of the same problem. So a couple of examples when similarly situated defendants, and this is an issue near and dear to my heart, when similarly situated defendants are convicted of a crime and appear before one judge to be sentenced, they might get one sentence, before a different judge, a different sentence, before a third judge, another sentence. So you get these great substantial variabilities. You give the example at great length of the book of insurance underwriters and how they set premiums. And you can take the same person who needs a premium set, and depending on the nature of the, or the identity of, or the mood of even, the insurance underwriter, the premiums can be all over the map. And that's the kind of noise and flaw in human judgment that you're getting at in the book. Do I have that basically right? Absolutely. And and why is it that you focus on noise and not bias? Well, uh, the two concepts of bias and noise are most easily understood by thinking about measurement, because actually we think of judgment, my co-authors and I, Olivier Siboni and Cass Sunstein and I, uh, we think of judgment as a measurement where the instrument is the human mind. And so the theory of measurement and the theory of errors of measurement is pertinent to the discussion of judgment. Now, if you're measuring a line with a very fine ruler, then When you repeat the measurement of the same line with the same ruler, you're not going to get the same numbers. It's going to vary from time to time. This variability is noise. The average error, systematic overestimate or underestimate, the difference of the error from zero, that's bias. Now, you can see that even in the complete absence of bias, suppose that you have uh, your ruler, your measuring instrument, isn't biased at all, so that its average error is zero. It can be all over the place. That is, the absolute values of the errors can be quite large, positive and negative, except there are about the same amount of positive and negative errors, so you have no bias, but you have noise. And clearly, those are errors. So these are two ways of that error can come about. One way is systematic, a variability, a difference, a systematic variation from the true, a systematic departure from the true value. And the other is noise, which is simply variability from trial to trial when you're measuring the same line or judging the same case or assigning a premium to the same risk. Or the example that finally made it more understandable to me when I got to it in the book, or shooting a free throw in a basketball game. You and your co-authors write in the book, quote, judgment is like a free throw in basketball, end quote. And that seems odd when you think about it. But then as you explain, nobody can perfect the exact same motion, even the, even the greatest professionals. 
who might have a free throw rate of 90%. No one can recreate the exact same motion of the hands and arms and wrist and everything else twice in a row. How is it helpful to think about judgment as a free throw? Well, there is inherent variability that, you know, we're used to in every domain. So we expect our moods to vary. We expect naturally our appetite to vary from hour to hour. We expect a lot of variability. We expect, if you look very closely, when you sign, make two signatures in a row, they're not identical. So variability is a basic biological phenomenon, and you see it absolutely everywhere. But this is one type of noise. It's what we call within-person noise. The between-person noise is that one judge is going to be systematically different from another. And in general, the differences between people are larger than the variability within person, that is the, and, but they're equally mysterious. But why, why, explain to folks who haven't read the book yet, why variability is necessarily bad. And you distinguish a couple of things. So when we're talking about the judgments that a group might make or individuals within a group might make about a movie or a piece of art or a novel, that variability is not only obviously expected, but even may be valued. You don't, you don't want a society in which, as you say in the book, everyone to feel the same about a movie they've seen. You want that differentiation and variability in people's critical reaction to something. Very different in other, in other areas, including how judges decide what the appropriate and fair sentence is for a defendant. So how, how do you determine in which scenarios and circumstances variability is okay and where variability is bad and either has a great cost or does damage to fairness and justice? Well, the main topic of our book is noise in professional judgments. So we think about professionals making judgments and typically on behalf of an organization. So when a judge sets a sentence to a defendant, in principle at least, the judge is not speaking for herself. Uh, she is speaking for the justice system. When an underwriter sets a premium for a risk, uh, the underwriter is speaking on behalf of the organization. Now it seems to be pretty clear that the organization should have one voice. That is, you would expect, uh, you would want uh, different judgments of the same object made on behalf of the organization to be the same. That is one obvious way in which noise is clearly undesirable. So the most interesting kind of noise, and you've already referred to it within a person, is, is jarring when I read about it. I think most people uh, of reasonably open-mindedness would understand that you have different judges, and lawyers certainly understand this, and you point out the defense lawyers know this and prosecutors know it. A lot of what happens in a particular case will depend on the lottery of the judge and what that judge's both biases are and the general noise across judges. And that makes sense, right? People are different, humans are different, and different people have you know, different approaches to life and to decision-making and everything else. That you know, the degree of that we can talk about, which is surprising. What I think is even more surprising to the, to the point of being very jarring is that people assume that within themselves, they're fairly consistent. You know, hour to hour or day to day, they have a particular view and whatever biases they have, you, you would presume that those biases would be consistent. And yet you point out again and again and again, something called occasion noise. And depending on the time of day 
that a judge or an insurance underwriter or someone else, depending on their mood, depending on their level of fatigue, make decidedly different judgments than their own selves might have at a different hour or a different day. And you point out further, and I'll stop the the summary, that that wasn't shocking to you as a scientist. What was shocking to you was how shocking that result was to the people being studied, that people have no sense of how variable their own judgments are. Can you elaborate on that? Well, uh, people have no sense of how, you know, how much they vary from one occasion to the other, or they have little sense of that. Although people do know that depending on their mood, they will like the same thing more or less. People do know that the same food is tastier on some occasion than on others. So we we have experience of internal noise. Uh, I think that what surprises people more is how different they are from other people. And the reason for that is that when I look at, at the world, I have the sense that I see the world as it is, as I do, because that's the way it is. Each of us feels that our perception of the world, our judgments about the world, are veridical, that they are true. And if they are veridical and true, then we expect any other reasonable person looking at the same thing to see approximately the same thing. And the amount of variability in judgments of the same object, of of the same crime, by the same defendant, that variability both within judge and between judges is much, much, much larger than people expect. The existence of disagreement or the existence of variability is not a surprise. What is surprising is the amount of it, the extent of it. And there is just shockingly more noise than people expect, both in the judicial system, in the insurance system, and in essentially in the medical, in medical judgments, in legal judgments, in effect, in any professional judgment that we've looked at. There is where judgment is involved, there is noise and more of it than you think. But are we hardwired? Are human beings' brains hardwired to have this problem? In other words, do we come into the world and grow up in the world believing necessarily that other people think like we do? Or are there, are there folks who, is, who escape that handcuffing a little bit such that they appreciate noise more? It seems very, you know, sort of part of our, our psyche to think that everyone sees the world the way we see the world. Well, I think, you know, when it's really built in, in the sense that your perception of the world is, is essentially veridical, that you see the world as it is and as you do because that's the way it is, that, that is really part of the human condition. I think somebody who didn't feel that their perception of veridical would be in an intolerable state of doubt. That's not how we live our lives. We live our lives with a sense that we understand the world we we live in and that our perceptions are roughly correct. And the idea that two of us can look at exactly the same thing and see that situation very differently so that one judge can assign a defendant three years in prison where another one would assign 15, that is surprising to people because it's just much more disagreement than we would expect. And even going back to the within person as applied to judges, you point out in several spots that there are particular times of day when judges, when the same judge is more likely to be lenient than harsh. 
typically after they've had a break, like lunch? What's, what's the reason for lenience after a meal? Well, I mean, in general, uh, when you are when you're in a good mood, you're going to be generally more lenient. When you're in a bad mood, you're going to be more severe. Uh, in many cases, depending on how fatigued you are, if you're tired, you're going to take the default option. You're much more likely to do the default thing without thinking. So, for example, physicians prescribe antibiotics more in the afternoon when they are tired than in the morning. They prescribe opioids more in the afternoon than in the morning. Uh, and that's because it's the easy way out of a situation. It's, the, it's what the, the patient expects. And that pressure is more effective on physicians when they're tired than when they're not tired. So that's the within-person noise. Judges, it turns out, you know, it's not a big effect, but it's a fairly consistent effect. They tend to be more lenient in the football team that they favored one yesterday. They tend to be more lenient than otherwise. Uh, there is a big effect on te- of temperature on many judgments that people make. Just the outdoor temperature, even, even though if, if presumably in the courtroom, it's a regulated room temperature level, your studies have pointed out that the outside temperature, the general temperature, or even how a sports team did, the local sports team did, can affect the rate of, of harshness or lenience. Yes. yes. And, you know, those are completely irrelevant features of the situation. They should not have any effect, and they have some effect. And there are many circumstances like that. Clearly, mood has an effect. So uh, what happened to the judge on the way home, on the way to the court, or what happened at home is going to have an effect on the way the judge performs or the insurance analyst or the physician. Right. This may be a dumb question, but does it necessarily follow that the better judgments by individuals and by groups are made when the mood is good and when no. people are not fatigued? Not not necessarily, right? I, mean, I, I feel like people think that that's not the case. Not necessarily. Because when people are fatigued and if they know they're, tell me if this is right, if people are fatigued and know they're fatigued, maybe they try a little harder and they engage in what, as you in another book call, you know, the, the second kind of thinking, not the first kind of thinking. Is that true or not? I would think that with respect to fatigue, that is not true, that when you are fatigued, you are more likely to take the default option and less likely to, to think things through. So you may know you're fatigued, but it's still overwhelmingly tempting to take the easy way when you're tired. Uh, with respect to mood, the situation is quite different. That is, being in a good mood or in a bad mood changes the way you think, but it doesn't, it's not that you simply think better when you're in a good mood. You tend to be more creative when you're in a good mood, but you also tend to be more superficial when you're in a good mood and more gullible when you're in a good mood than when you're in a bad mood. So that with respect to mood, the picture is ambiguous. With respect to fatigue, it's clear that being fatigued is not good for judgment. So here's my try at another dumb question. In the case of a judge, when a judge is in a good mood, either because it's their birthday, and you, you actually talk about statistics relating to defendants getting lower sentences on their birthdays, no study that, that you were aware of in the book uh, uh, examining whether or not judges on their own birthdays are more lenient or not. But let's say a judge knows on particular occasions that he or she is going to be in a good mood. And they're more lenient on those occasions. Is that bias or is that noise? Well, noise is is variability in bias. That is, bias is a systematic error. So you can be, 
it's clear you're biased to be more lenient on uh, on days when you're in a good mood, but whether you're in a good mood or in a bad mood, that's accidental. So you're biased both ways, and it's the variability of your biases that creates noise. So are you fatigued at this moment? Maybe we, maybe we should have open disclosure to the guests. Uh, quite tired this moment. I flew <laughs> okay. from California last, well, at midnight last night. I won't ask you to make any important professional judgments. No, then. please don't. <laughs> the, the one example of within-person noise that I thought was more than jarring, actually shocking, was I think you, you refer to a study of 22 physicians who examined the same 13 angiograms several months apart. So they did not know they were, they were re-examining an angiogram that they looked at before and made a certain judgment, and that those physicians disagreed with themselves between 63 and 92% of the time. Isn't that an extraordinary discrepancy? Um, you know, I'm going to make a very embarrassing confession. I think this number is a mistake, ah. and it's our mistake. Uh, I think we had it backward. So there is inconsistency, but there's not, not quite that ninety percent. No, no, it's between ten and forty percent of the time they don't agree with themselves, and that's bad enough. And I apologize to everybody for that mistake. Okay, it it hit me, so I, I felt like yeah. I needed to ask you um, about it. That's why so, I apologize. So, so let's let's pause for a second for people who have jobs where they make professional judgments, which is a lot of people, perhaps most people. Once you are armed, and we'll get to the judges in a moment because that's a subject that's important to me given my former line of work. But so if you know that groups are variable and you know that you yourself are not yourself uh, at all times and you have an important job and you have to make important decisions about things, whether to set a price or whether to, uh, you know, to value a stock in a particular way, what's the lesson for you about how you should think about making decisions and should you always get nine hours of sleep? Uh, well, you certainly should get enough sleep. You certainly should not make judgments when you're in an extreme mood. Uh, those are obvious. And in addition, there are really steps that you can take to reduce error and to improve the, qu the quality of judgment. When I say you, that's not quite accurate. I think organizations can impose procedures and can impose ways of thinking on people who make judgments on their behalf. And I think that organizations can improve the judgment of people who work, other people who work for them. We call that those steps that improve judgments, we call them decision hygiene. And it's a somewhat off-putting term. It's a bit like washing your hands. Decision hygiene has a character that you don't know when you wash your hands what germs you're killing. You don't know what disease you're preventing. So there are just steps that you'd better take because they make you generally safer. And there are steps that when there are ways of organizing one's judgment process or the judgment process in an organization that are less error-prone than others. So let's, let's talk about the judgment of, a, of the crowd for a moment. And there's the saying that you recite, uh, there's wisdom in the crowd. So for example, and this I found surprising also, if you ask one person to guess the weight of a large farm animal, or you ask one person to guess the number of jelly beans in a big jar, they'll be off by often a lot. If you ask two people and you take the average, you'll do better. If you have hundreds of people each making their guess, the, the likelihood of accuracy is increased dramatically. So does that mean that in all cases, the crowd is wise? 
Well, here is where the difference between noise and bias is really important. So uh, suppose you have people judging the, that's the classic story, judging the weight of an ox at a fair. If they tend to be biased, you know, if they are biased, so that the average of their error is, say, plus 100 pounds, that is not fixed by taking many people. On the other hand, when you take many judgments, they're guaranteed to reduce noise. And if you take a lot of judgment, the average of the judgments is essentially noise-free. So this is one way of getting rid of noise, and this is averaging multiple judgments. It would be obvious in the case of measuring the length of a line that you are better off measuring the line 10 times and taking the average of the 10 measurements than counting, taking one measurement and believing that accepting that judgment as valid, that measurement as valid. Right. But what it seems important to this conclusion and observation is that the individual judgments that later get aggregated and then averaged, that each of those judgments has to be independent and is not influenced in advance by the predictions, judgments of other people. So that, for example, there's a, there's a great study that you and your co-authors refer to, or a number of studies, about the popularity of certain songs and people's judgments about which songs were, were good or not good, you know, came out sort of predictably when they were independently saying whether they liked a song or not. But once you introduce the concept of popularity of songs, in other words, people could see how many other people had already downloaded or liked a song, that had a very dramatic effect on whether or not the particular individual liked the song because they were being influenced socially. How big a problem is that? You know, it turns out this is what fashion and fads look like. With respect to songs, it was really dramatic. There was a study, I believe they had 50 songs uh, that they studied the popularity of. They allowed people to download them. And for different groups, they allowed people to know about each song, how many times it had been, what, with what frequency it had been downloaded by prior people in the same group. And that had the cultures that they set up very dramatically. That is, the groups, the separate groups, very dramatically. And it turned out that which song was a hit was, in effect, barely predictable. That is, there was very little difference between average song and very good song. Awful songs were much more predictable. That is, there was more agreement between people on what is a really bad song. But there is relatively little agreement on what is a hit on what is a good sound, a good song, that seems to be largely accidental. But there was one exception. My favorite, my favorite part of the description of that study was that even when you, uh, at some point, somebody in the study inverted the original judgments. So, score, you know, false scores were given to songs that were, you know, deemed by the control group to be not good and were given metrics that suggested they were good, but that over time, the truly excellent song would still rise. And I think you say in the book, the lesson of that is there's no keeping a good song, a great song down, I think. Does that offer us some hope? Well, it takes a lot of judgments in order to turn, you know, to turn, flick back this effect of conformity. Ultimately, but that takes a very long time, you know, quality will rise to some extent. I mean, you know, you can take an indefinite number of, let's put it this way, which song is a hit today is largely accidental. 
That is the difference between the top song and the 10th most popular song. Uh, that is largely an accident of, you know, how many times they were played early on. When many disc jockeys adopt the same song, it can be by accident. That's, that tends to snowball. That has an effect that is self-reinforcing. And that's how fashion happens. So I guess my question then is, in an area that's not maybe uh, as high stakes as criminal prosecution and sentencing, but if you're, a, you know, if you're in the recording industry, I mean, is, is there a vast amount of science that they rely upon to try to figure out how to get their songs to be hits? Or are they as lacking in this understanding about noise as all these other professions? Well, I think it's generally accepted uh, that the success of films and of songs is largely unpredictable. You can, you can recognize very bad books or recognize very bad songs, and on that there tends to be agreement. But what will be a hit, what will be a bestseller, is really not predictable unless you have an author or a songwriter with a record and everybody is curious what is the last thing that they did. And that is likely to be at least temporarily a success, a hit. But by and large, I think there is agreement that there is very little agreement. My conversation with Daniel Kahneman continues after this. There's something interesting that you refer to that just popped into my head based on the songs, and I wonder if there's a difference in these two areas. And, and one is the, the bias or the noise that occurs when professors grade exams. And it tends to be true, I think you conclude, that a professor who knows the identity of a student, if you like the, fir- the answer to the first question or if you like the first paper, your favorable impression of that answer, that substantive response, will color your view of the second response or the second paper. And you'll tend to feel that it was better perhaps than it actually is because of the, you know, the halo effect of the first. So far, so good, right? Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, that's, I described that, I think, because that was a personal experience. I used to read, you know, multiple essays in booklets when I was a professor and grading, grading essays. And I would write down the score, the grade for an essay, then I would read the next essay by the same student. And then I decided on one occasion just to try to grade all the essays from all the students and grade each of them and write the grade at the back of the book, so I, uh, the booklet, so I would not see it when I read the next, uh, the next question. And the results were really shocking and very disappointing to me. And the shock and the disappointment were that I found that here was that student, and students seemed to differ from one essay to the next much, much more than they had in my in the previous the normal way that I have been doing it. And the mechanism is really straightforward. When you have given a very good grade to an essay and, and you read the next essay and it says something stupid, you say, well, you know, they didn't mean it. You give them the benefit of the doubt. And giving the benefit of the doubt is a failure of this independence principle, which is the main noise reduction principle that, that we focus on. So that's a method for reducing noise there. 
But the reason I asked the question is we were talking about music a moment ago. And just based on my anecdotal experience, without having delved into this, does, does that same dynamic occur with songs? If you like the first song by a particular artist and then they release a second song, are you more likely to like the second song because you like the first? Or might you be disappointed if the second song is not as good as the first? Well, I think uh, there are both effects. Uh, there is likely to be a somewhat of a contrast effect, but by and large, the halo effect is going to be much stronger. So that if you love the the song by the first author, you'll be strongly inclined to like the second one and and to give it the benefit of the doubt. So that, for example, if you don't feel a thrill with it, you might think, well, perhaps I'm not in the right mood. And if you have that kind of thought, this is a sign that your judgments are not independent of each other. And you tend to be internally more consistent in this case, but that will create differences between people because it's an accident when different people hear a series of songs, whether they like the first one more or less determines how much they like the second one. And that snowballs again. Those differences tend to snowball. Well, I would like to, Danny, respectfully suggest a further study in your next book on a particular phenomenon in music known as the one-hit wonder. Uh, <laughs> there are bands and musical acts that have one outsized hit and this halo effect didn't seem to help them because they never produced another hit again, even though one might conclude if you loved one song, you would at least like another song. So I'm, I'm, curious, I'm curious to know how that works. But on to more serious matters, judges who sentence people to prison and take away their liberty, which is part of their job and a, and a part of the job that most judges find to be the most difficult. Your studying and conclusions make it even more imperative that we think about and judges think about and society thinks about the ways in which you get fairness in sentencing. And one feature of fairness, not the only feature, but one feature of fairness is consistency. So that if by happenstance you commit a, a, you know, a particular fraud in New Jersey and someone else commits the exact same fraud in Oregon or in California or in Texas, that it's reasonably foreseeable that you will get the same sentence from different folks. And lots and lots of studies have shown that's not true. In fact, there was a big movement, as you recite in your book back in the early 80s, pioneered by a federal district court judge to try to get rid of these discrepancies. And what emerged from that was what at one time was mandatory sentencing guidelines, where you would take all these factors and you would eliminate some of the discretion that judges have. And by eliminating some of the discretion, this is not the language that courts used before or Congress used before, but to use your parlance, that eliminated some noise. But that didn't work out, as you also describe. How come? Well, it turns out that judges hated it. They hated the guidelines, and they resisted them. And indeed, the guidelines did reduce noise quite significantly. There is evidence to that. And then the guidelines, uh, because of an issue, the Supreme Court um, well, I wouldn't call it a technical matter because it was an important matter, but the Supreme Court turned the guidelines from compulsory to advisory. And since then, there is much more noise and and there is evidence that the judge like it much better this way. That is, judges feel that the way they feel about a case, that is justice. And, you know, that's a very striking example in my mind of what I was saying earlier, that you feel the world 
as you see it must be the world as it is, that the just the, the sentence that feels just to a judge, that is their sense that it must be just. And the fact that another judge would give a very different judgment, that is something that my sense of the judicial system doesn't want to think about. So are, are we are we doing this all wrong? One thought came to me as I was reading your book, and that is there are circumstances in the law in which our system understands that the judgment of one actor, one judge alone, will not provide sufficient justice. So that when you take a case up on appeal, it's not one judge, it's three. Uh, there are opportunities, even in the Federal Court of Appeals, to raise the matter with the full Court of Appeals. So sometimes you can have you know, more than 10 judges weighing in on a matter. So you know the outliers cancel each other out in some measure, and, and you get a little closer to the equivalent of what you were describing at the beginning, of taking multiple measures of a, of, a, of a line. And then, of course, in the most important court in the land, you don't have one judge deciding, you have nine. And then let's go back to the moment of truth for a particular individual who's been convicted of a crime. Who's deciding that sentence? One judge. And, and a radical thought occurred to me, which is not you know, practically uh, implementable, I don't think. But, but would we have a better system if at a minimum we brought two or three other judges in at the moment of sentencing, and they had to agree or, you know, do an average. And again, this is a thought experiment. I don't want letters from lawyers telling me why this is such a terrible idea. But would we have less noise and more fairness if we added humans? That is guaranteed. Yeah. That you would have less noise is a mathematically, that's mathematically guaranteed. It's so like would that measuring. be more just and more fair also? Well, you know, how are you going to define justice or fairness? In general, I think, you you would expect that the average judgment of many judges is more reliable as an indication of what is just than the judgment of a smaller number or, or of a single individual. And that difference is because you're eliminating noise when you're taking many people. If there is bias, by the way, as I mentioned earlier, taking many judges, if all of them are biased, is not going to improve things. But noise, you can improve by taking many measurements or by using or by having many judges participate, provided they're independent of each other. One thing you talk about, and that is a constant focus of study, particularly in the law, but, but everywhere, is the difference between a standard and a rule. And a rule reduces discretion. And so again, to use your parlance, it reduces noise. So you have less variability because you have less discretion. Standards allow for discretion and also bring into play more noise and more bias. Do you think we need more rules and fewer standards, generally speaking? Oh, that's a deep philosophical question. And I don't <laughs> that's think why I I'm asking to. you. <laughs> well, uh, you know, one of the problems with rules, and this we know all too well in the justice system, uh, is that when you have rules, people can look for loopholes in the rules, which is harder to do when there are standards. So the response, the societal response to rules and to standards tends to be quite different. And in, in many cases, I would think that standards are preferable to rules that, that can be gamed. Rules that can be gamed are possibly the worst or least equitable that I can think of because getting a good lawyer turns out to be very important in a system that operates on rules. Some of what your research shows is eye-opening 
for people to understand the usefulness of interviewing? First of all, do you think hiring interviews are useful? Well, it depends how they're conducted. And there is a very large difference in the usefulness in usefulness between what we call structured and unstructured interviews. Uh, the unstructured interview is when you just you have a person try to get an impression of another person and just asking questions of, as they arise in the context of the conversation. It turns out that unstructured interviews are really quite weak in the information that they provide. Structured interviews are better. But it should also be pointed out that hiring is very difficult. Good hiring is difficult. In fact, perfect hiring is impossible because future performance will depend on chance to a large extent, and that's unpredictable. But uh, I would say the general judgment is that unstructured interviews are largely useless. They feel, they don't feel useless to the people who conduct them. You have the sense that it's very important for you to know the person. But in terms of their predictive validity, they really do very little. Part of what's going on there, and this gets to another maybe impossibly large sort of psychological and philosophical topic that we can't give proper uh, attention to, but it's the role of intuition. So very successful people, and even some not successful people, have a lot of confidence in their ability to make decisions. They also have a lot of confidence in their ability to judge applicants to jobs. And, you know, they have a gut feeling about somebody. And I think maybe, uh, you know, in sports recruiting, which is largely, I think, I'm not an expert, but largely focused on statistics and metrics and measurable things, there is still some element of gut or intuition. Is it okay for that to enter into the calculus in hiring? And, and then a the larger question, when is it fair and safe to rely on intuition? And when is it not? Well, uh, we know a fair amount, you know, people like making intuitive judgments. Intuitive judgments have the characteristic that they come with high confidence. You know, you have an intuition that means you're pretty sure that you've got it right. You may not know why you've got it right, and that's part of, that's how intuition is sometimes defined, as people feeling that they know something without knowing why they know it. But intuition and the confidence that comes with it is not always justified. And actually, we do know we have some fairly simple rules about when intuitions are trustworthy and when they are not. And in many domains, people have intuitions and they shouldn't trust them. If you deal with an unpredictable world, essentially, uh, then you may have a lot of intuitions, but those intuitions are likely to be completely worthless. I'll give you an example, the stock market. The stock market is largely unpredictable. If it were predict, it's almost perfectly unpredictable. If it were predictable, people would take advantage of it, and then it would become unpredictable. So the stock market is unpredictable, and yet people have strong intuitions about particular stocks, and they trade on their intuitions. And those trades are typically not good for the trader. They're called noise trades, actually. So in in sports... Scouts have intuition, and there is that famous book by Michael Lewis, Moneyball, showing, and the and the lovely film uh, that they made of it with Brad Pitt, indicating that scouts are, are too confident, and that actually statistics were underused in baseball. They're much, I think, the Michael Lewis 
uh, performed a big service. And ever since Moneyball, statistics have become much more significant and are used much more frequently in sports. But the the judgment of scout, the intuitive judgment of scouts, of which they're completely sure, turns out not to be worth that much. I recommend the film, by the way. I've seen it. No, it's it's lovely, and and uh, and uh, we're all here fans of Michael Lewis as well, who has all also written about you and your work, and and people should check that book out also. I've been thinking about how to ask this question, which seems relevant in light of what you just said, and that is. Generally speaking, and I might not have this completely right, so bear with me. Generally speaking, we t- when you talk about noise, we view that as a bad thing because you don't get accurate judgments and predictions aren't you know, well-developed in many instances. But I wonder when you're talking about something normative, a decision about a sentence for somebody or a decision about what the v- proper value of a company is. So you, you, you mentioned stock picking a moment ago. And I know the job of a stock picker is not to assess the value of a company, but to predict what other people will think the value of the company is going to be such that you can make you know, good recommendations for your clients. And I don't know if there have been any studies about this, but it's something that I'm curious about given our conversation in your book. Is it sometimes the case that over time, you know, outliers who, who are wrong about the value of a company and the, and the price of a stock, can they be influencers to bring the value of that company down because it should come down based on a, on a slew of other economic indicators and financial indicators about the company. In other words, is it still important to have noise so that uh, th- things that are overvalued become less valued? Or in the case of criminal justice and sentencing, the outliers who say in case after case that sentences meted out for small crimes or nonviolent crimes should be less you know, but they're sort of deviants because that's not how the rest of the folks think. And I know I'm not asking this in, a, in an artful way, but is there some role, an important role of that kind of noise so that over the long term you get something better as a result? Well, you know, in, in normative problems um, such as the length of sentences, there are philosophical differences. And, you know, it's not clear whether necessarily the trend is upward and the trend is toward improvement. But certainly, uh, noise can create variability and can create changes that can certainly happen. It's not, by the way, it's, it's not so much the sentences that cause the change. Some people think that the system is not right, that the sentencing system is not right. And that debate certainly is a completely justified debate. The question is whether individual defendants should bear the burden of that variability. That's a different question. And I'm not sure that noise necessarily leads to, to improvement. Is there anything from your work that informs your view of how society should deal with and governments and businesses should deal with COVID vaccination hesitancy? That topic has been much discussed, and I don't think I have much to offer. Uh, There are so many reasons for vaccine hesitancy, and there is no obvious cure, because if there had been an obvious cure, uh, people would have used it. Uh, So I don't think, sadly, that I have much to offer on this. Let me take another shot. Is it your view, based on your work and all the studies you've been involved in, that not only do people not appreciate 
their own variability, but that people are not good at assessing probability, whether or not they took uh, advanced math classes, right? <laughs> that is certainly true. People are quite weak at assessing risks. I know there's some people for whom this has become a polarizing political issue, but do you have some sense, just as an observer, as to how much people's resistance to masks or vaccines or other kinds of things has to do with this issue? You know, an, an inability to properly gauge risk and probability. Well, that is certainly part of it. That is, if people were able to gauge risks or probability, we wouldn't see uh, what we're seeing now. That's clear. But I would also add that it, this is not so much an issue of people assessing the risk by themselves. None of us individuals have enough information to do that. So the issue is not so much whether we can assess the risk individually, it's who we trust when it comes to assessing risks. And all of us have to rely on other people in assessing risks. And who we choose to trust, that turns out to be the major difference and the major variable in whether people get vaccinated or not. Do you think that people should be taught principles of psychology at an early age? And if so, how early? I think it wouldn't hurt for people <laughs> to, to be taught to be critical of thinking, their own and that of others. It's actually easier to, to be critical of other people's thinking, and so that's what I would focus on teaching. And presumably, if people were critical of the quality of each other's thinking, standards of thinking might rise, and that would be a very desirable thing. I have a more particular question that you may not have an opinion on. But also, as I was preparing for the interview, I, I go back to something that I, I mentioned in my own book and I've mentioned many, many times. I was at a When I was the United States Attorney in New York, I went to a, a, a compliance conference, uh, you know, an enforcement conference in London. And there was a, a woman who was the general counsel of a very big company, Fortune 50 company. And she said that she had gotten her undergraduate degree in psychology and then obviously got a law degree. And that as, as general counsel of the company, where much of her job was focused on trying to get people to behave better and conduct themselves appropriately, that she relied much more on her psychology degree than on her law degree. My questions are, A, does that resonate with you? And B, will you join me in advocating for mandatory psychology classes in law schools? Uh, it certainly resonates with me. You know, I'm biased that way. Uh, <laughs> right. I, think that, I think that cognitive errors should be mandatory in, in law schools. That I, you know because the judgments that these people make are too important to be left to chance. So that's a yes. Yes. So I'll draw, I'll draw up the yes. petition. I'll draw, I'll draw up the petition. Um, what is more important? I know you have a view on this, but I'll ask it broadly. What, what's more important for an organization or for a society to reduce misery or to promote happiness? Oh, I, I think reducing misery is a far better goal for society than promoting happiness. I mean, promoting happiness is very good, but reducing misery is more urgent and also likelier to mobilize people to action and mobilize society. So I think reducing misery would be my first priority. That's, that's interesting you say that because I've had discussions recently with guests on the show and we addressed a particular misery-causing phenomenon, poverty, extreme poverty. And, and I'm, I'm interested in what you said a moment ago about how you might get more people on board. Joe Biden was quoted as saying not too long ago, and I don't want to get into politics, but for the purposes of this conversation, I think it's relevant. 
that there are politicians who believe Joe Biden may be one of them, that for political success and for consensus building, we should spend more time talking about the middle class and improving their lot, which seems to me to be the analog of promoting happiness, rather than trying to bring people in extreme poverty up, which would be the equivalent of reducing misery. And that society as a whole cares more about improving the lot of the middle than in helping the lot of the poor. Do you have any reaction to that? Well, you know, the the reaction is that this is a political system and there are more, more voters in the middle than there are uh, among the very poor and that people, to some extent at least, vote their own interests. So when, you know, we're talking about society at large, uh, there are political realities that... Um, just have to be accepted because they exist. When you talk about the balance in favor of reducing misery versus promoting happiness, is there is there an economic is there an overall social welfare or economic argument that is part of that, or it's, is it something else? In part, it's a, it's an observation that you know we've made we made a while ago, and it's a, it's a very commonplace one, which is that people well that's bad is more powerful than good, pain is more powerful than pleasure, and, and losing $100 has a bigger impact than winning $100. So there is that phenomenon that we've called loss aversion. And loss aversion means that losses loom larger than gains, and it means that reducing losses has a bigger effect overall psychologically than improving gains by the same amount. So that's the underlying phenomenon. And do you think that's important for corporations as well to understand? Well, certainly. And many of them do. Right. Notwithstanding, we could, we could get into a discussion that occurs to me about the minimum wage and how that would have an impact on worker morale and on the institution and the mood at the institution itself. But that's, I don't think we have, we have time for that. You spent a lot of time debunking long-held articles of faith on the part of a lot of very smart people. Namely, if I, if I can phrase it this way, showing people the folly of believing that all people are rational. This book, Noise, is a little bit about that and showing in, in fairly straightforward ways and experiments that our knowledge of ourselves and our knowledge of decision-making is pretty poor. And this is decades after some of your most groundbreaking work and, and a long while after you won the Nobel Prize in economics. If I might ask you to be immodest for a moment, what is the contribution you have made to people's knowledge and understanding that you are most proud of or you think that was the most important? I would think our early work on biases of judgment turned out to be quite important, more important than we expected at the time, because in fact, there is within the social sciences and in philosophy, a very strong argument that people are rational. And we showed that people are not rational by the technical definition that they are error-free. We showed that people make systematic errors. That, I think, turned out to be quite important, although in some ways, you know, it's also obvious, but it had an effect on the, on the general conversation about the quality of human thinking. That was a contribution. And, and if I had to pick another, it would be loss of illusion. It would be the asymmetry between gains and losses. Again, something that is widely known, but we brought it into the conversation in a way that hadn't existed before. And then further to that, has there been, uh, to your knowledge, some concrete reaction 
either at the government level or in the private sector or in academia or in education somewhere that you think was an improvement that resulted from your work that you were most appreciative of? Well, you know, it's not our work directly. I mean, you know, our work has been applied in many places uh, to in attempts to reduce bias or improve the quality of judgment. But indirectly, and well, fairly directly, our work had an impact on, on behavior economics. And if you think that behavior economics and nudging uh, are beneficial, then we've made a contribution to that. We've been talking a lot about, and much of the book and your work focuses on, recurring decision-making. And whether they're predictive or not, you can make a judgment about the accuracy of the hire, presumably, as you point out, by seeing how that particular person did when they were hired for the job. Did they meet expectations? Did they not? You can do the same with sports. You can do the same with lots of other things. But there's another kind of decision that is very important in the world, which you refer to as singular decisions. And those are things that are not capable of repetition. You give various examples. The example that came to my mind when I was reading was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you say in a way that had never occurred to me before, that whereas people in your field, psychology and economics and other areas, focus on recurring decisions to figure out ways to make that decision-making better and, and hone it and improve it and reduce noise, these kinds of singular decisions, whether it's the Cuban Missile Crisis or something else, are largely relegated to historians and people like that. Explain to folks what your work means for this distinct category of singular decisions, something that, ha- that occurs once, it's a big deal in someone's life, but it's not going to happen again. How do you make those decisions? Well, our main point actually on this is that the, there is less difference than there appears to be. And uh, Olivier, one of our, my collaborators, came up with a sentence that I think is really very apt where he said that a unique event is a repeated event that happens only once. That is, <laughs> there is no essential difference between unique events and repeated events, except that unique events don't recur. But think, you ought to be thinking about unique events in the same way that you ought to be thinking about repeated events. That is, whatever uh, prescriptions of decision hygiene or other prescriptions you have to improve the quality of thinking about recurrent events, that should, that is, there is no reason on earth not to apply the same rules and the same improved mode of thinking to singular events. And among those things are what? Including taking some time to make the decision? Including personal decisions and including momentous decisions. Look, there is no foolproof way of thinking. The world is an uncertain place. You can make the best judgment and it won't work. You can make bad judgment that will work out beautifully. We are playing the odds here. That is, we are looking for ways of thinking that on average do better than others. And those ways of thinking, you can study them in repeated situations, but what turns out to be good in repeated situations will turn out to be, you know, there is no reason to believe that it's any different in singular decisions. There's an interesting prescription that I think you give when you're talking about free throws. We referred to that earlier. There are people in sports who don't think necessarily somebody is lucky, you know, has uh, hot hands at the roulette table or craps table in, in Las Vegas. But there is a belief in streaks. What does your work tell you about a belief in a sports streak? 
Well, that belief is exaggerated. There are streaks. Clearly, it's not, uh, you know, success on successive on successive trials is not independent. There are streaks, but people's belief in streaks is vastly exaggerated. We see the world as much more organized and as much more structured than it really is. If there's something that you could have studied some years ago, is there an area of inquiry that you wish you could go back and do more work on? I left the problem, I left the field of happiness studies because I I couldn't see my way to a clear resolution of what is more important in life, uh, life satisfaction or happiness. And to some extent, I wish I had stayed with it a little more, I think. Danny, Daniel Kahneman, congratulations again on the book, Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. And let me just repeat, it's been a huge treat to speak with you and to learn from you, not just in this interview, but in your book, in your prior book, and other writings. Thank you for your service to the country and the world, sir. Thank you. It was a pleasure. My conversation with Daniel Kahneman continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week on a quick personal note. As many of you know, if you follow me on social media, I took a trip last week. It's sort of become a tradition in my family that before one of my kids goes to college, there is a compelled father-kid trip somewhere. I was supposed to take my daughter two years ago to New Orleans, but there was a hurricane, so we went to Boston. And this year, thinking about where I would take my 18-year-old son, also college-bound in a few weeks, sadly for me and my wife, but happily for him and his future, he's a country music fan the biggest country music fan in the family, and we thought, why not go to Nashville? So last Thursday, we went and listened to a lot of music, had a great time, bonded a little bit. As a measure of how good a kid my son is, he even laughs at dad jokes made by his own dad. But the reason I'm mentioning all this is, you know, I've never been to Nashville before, so I put a call out on Twitter, that toxic platform that we're always complaining about, and said, I'm taking my son to Nashville. Do you have any thoughts, any recommendations? And I got an outpouring of communications from people Tweets, texts, emails, direct messages from people who showed how much pride they have in their city. And it was moving and touching to get that reaction. And the recommendations you made about food places and music venues and museums and other sites to see in Nashville actually shaped our trip. We did some of the obvious things, like go to the Country Music Hall of Fame and the Johnny Cash Museum. But then there were other things that may not have occurred to us, like a spot called the Mercy Lounge and a restaurant called Arnold's that served up bluegrass music at lunch, and all the various hot chicken places that are the pride of Nashville. So I want to thank folks for just taking the time to help me and my son plan our trip. Nashville was a great place, great music, great food, great people. Can't wait to go back. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Daniel Kahneman. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.